Welcome to All About Capital Campaigns, a podcast that provides fuel for your nonprofit's growth. Each week, hosts Andrea Kilstedt and Amy Eisenstein, co-founders of the Capital Campaign Toolkit, provide practical tips about raising more money for your nonprofit organization. The Capital Campaign Toolkit is a support system for nonprofit leaders who are running capital campaigns. At CapitalCampaignToolkit.com, you can download a step-by-step guide for your capital campaign and get many other free resources. This podcast is recorded on a live webinar every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. You can join the live session and get your questions answered by signing up today at ToolkitTalks.com. weeks ago, you may know that the Capital Campaign Toolkit is a membership organization and people who sign on at any level really get to join a Wednesday group call, Wednesday small group call with with an advisor. I'm on some of those calls. Amy's on some some of our advisors and others. And often we have, I don't know, six or eight or 10 people on those calls and we discuss a topic. And the other day, we discussed this question of comprehensive campaigns versus capital campaigns, which is actually a big and complicated topic. And one of the people on the calls, Mindy Weichselman, um, had such a compelling discussion. She led such a discussion, compelling discussion of that, that we we decided we were going to invite her to to answer questions and to write a blog post about that subject, which will come out this week. But we thought it'd be great to have a conversation with all of you on the on the call about that. So let me see if I can set the stage, and then any of you who have thoughts or suggestions about it, you can chime in, or you can ask questions, or you can ask any other questions you want. But here's the scoop. There are multiple kinds of capital kinds of campaigns. Often the umbrella we use is the umbrella of capital campaigns, but under that, it's kind of a funny rubric. We 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 use the, the phrase a capital campaign to mean a building campaign or a combined campaign that combines build a building campaign, money raised for a building with money raised for endowment or a comprehensive campaign, which essentially combines all the fundraising you're going to be doing, including annual fundraising. And what you do is to project over the years of the campaign, how much money you think you're going to be raising in your annual fundraising, all of your annual fundraising, and you add that to your campaign goal. So for example, let's say, I'm just going to have simple numbers. Let's say you're going to do a million dollar campaign and each year your organization raises, I don't know. um, $100,000. What, $100,000, Yeah. Keep it simple. Keep the math. Each year your organization in annual fundraising raises $100,000. So what you would do is to say, well, in each of the three years of our campaign, we're going to raise $100,000 or a little more. So instead of having a million dollar campaign, we're going to raise that by the $300,000 we anticipate raising an annual fund for these three years. So now we have a campaign goal for a million three. Was that clear? That makes sense. Now you can also add endowment. You can add all. You can add other things to that as well. All of which raises the goal and changes the way you talk to your donors because instead of going to them for a capital ask 
first, and then year after year asking them for annual fund, you can go to them for a capital ask and ask them to pledge annual fund for three years and whatever endowment whatever endowment they might give or plan giving they might give. And instead of going back to them and again and again and again, you're doing the whole thing in one, in one shebang. How's that? <laughs> now, those of you who work in universities know this model well, because it's a campaign model that is often used in universities. It is not a campaign model that is often or always used in smaller organizations. And it, it, accomplishes some things, but it also loses some things. So let me just take a couple more minutes and then we'll, I'll turn it over to you for your thoughts on this. But here's what it, what it gains is this. Everyone is always worried about the campaign that it will cannibalize your annual fund, that you're going to ask people for a building campaign gift, right? A, cap, a true capital campaign gift. And then they're going to give to that and they won't give to your annual fund. Now, if you combine them all in a comprehensive campaign and you ask for three years of annual fund and for pledge for your building campaign, then you wrap them all together. And the belief is that, that then you won't cannibalize your, your annual fund. Now, I can make some sense of that, particularly in universities where they rely so heavily on, on alumni giving. Right. If you have a big alumni and every year you have alumni classes, you want to be able to count all that alumni giving into your campaign so that it's going to raise your alumni giving by saying all of your alumni gifts are going to count towards your campaign. And the goals, of course, get higher. Right. When you read about a university campaign where the university is raising three billion dollars. Right. The way they do it is that they wrap everything the institution is going to raise in one supersized goal. And then no matter what they raise or how they raise it, it falls into that into that big, great big bucket. And purposely what happens is that the the boundaries between these gifts diminish and you're talking to people about the vision for the for the organization. You may be asking them for a building for the law school and for an, an, an alumni gift and a plan gift all at once, but you're always working on the vision of the institution. Smaller organizations, in my experience, have a harder time doing that and doing it effectively. But Mindy, in answering the questions that we posed to her and in this, this week's blog post, has written a terrific piece for us. And I think it comes out, what, tomorrow? Tomorrow. Tomorrow, if you watch for the Capital Campaign Toolkit blog post tomorrow, you will see the post that Mindy has has essentially written for us, specifically about comprehensive campaigns. Next week, we're going to write one about smaller campaigns, this other other targeted approach. So, all right, Amy. Excellent. Uh, I think that was a good explanation. I do want to go back to something you said and sort of breezed over earlier. Um, the difference between a capital campaign and a capacity campaign. Now we're talking about a comprehensive campaign, so it can all get a little overwhelming and confusing and muddled, honestly. And some of it honestly is just semantics, but some of it isn't. Um, and, you know, truly, if we could go back in time and rewind, we would probably exchange the term capital campaign 
for capacity campaign because all campaigns are to grow an organization's capacity. That's what they do. Some of them have buildings and some of them don't. And so really capital campaigns should probably be called capacity campaigns. That's not the common jargon, right? Everybody calls them capital campaigns, but then it's confusing for people because you wonder, does a capital campaign or a capacity campaign have to have a building component, uh, you know, a physical building that you're building? And in a capacity campaign, clearly not. You can raise money for lots of things to raise your capacity of your organization without doing a building, without building a building. Now, should a capital campaign, you know, have to include a building? Maybe, maybe not. But anyways, so next week, actually, we're going to be doing a webinar on just that, on capacity campaigns. Um, We mentioned it last week, and I'm going to put the link Uh, in the chat box. And if you're listening on the podcast, uh, hopefully we will get that information to you as well. Um, So the link's going out now, capitalcampaigntoolkit.com slash raise $1 million, 1 million with a capacity campaign, all with hyphens in between. So um, sign up for that webinar if you're interested in capacity campaigns basically capital campaigns without a building or with or without a building um, to raise your capacity. So we'll be doing that on Tuesday, the 2nd of February. And we invite you to include your board members, your executive director, um, and everybody to hear us talk about how to raise a million dollars with a capacity campaign. So, all right, Andrea, let's go to questions now. We've got yes. a whole bunch of them that have yes. come in. Amy, um, uh, Patty Rosalie raised her hand recently, and I never know what to do with hand raisers. Yeah, so I, it, it, it simply type your comment or question in the Q&A and we'll see it there. I, I just never, we can't figure out what to do about people <laughs> who raise their hands. Yeah, we're not going to unmute you. There's too many right. people on the too line. Right. Um, so I, I, sometimes I think people hit it by accident, honestly, yeah. when they're opening the Q&A box, other times maybe. Um, but you're, we are happy to answer your questions in the Q&A box. So let's go there. Is there somebody you want to start with, Andrea, or should I just start reading them? Uh, why don't you just start reading them, Amy? All right. Jacqueline's asking at the beginning of a, the pre-campaign planning stage, uh, that's where she is, but already has donors who are interested in giving money. Yay, Jacqueline. Is it acceptable to create a brief outline of the project for those donors? And what would you include? But I think the bottom line question is, should you be soliciting money before your plans are ready? That's the question. Um, and I, Andrea, you can start us. I'm curious what you think. Right. So here's the, here, it's, it's actually one of these wonderful questions that of course, if someone wants to give you money, you want to accept it, right? That's the natural tendency is to say, Amy, you want to give me money? Thank you so much. I'll take your money, right? That's the one. Here's here's you know roughly what we're thinking about doing. The rather than do that, however, I would I would caution you a bit because I think you will you may be better off just delaying them a bit and saying you're in the process of putting the plans together and you will be back to them very soon. 
but you would, and you so appreciate their asking, but you know that they're going to want to know more about the project. Then you can create your goal and a gift raise chart, and you can see, you can actually sort of point them to making a gift that is in the context of the campaign that you're planning. So, so encourage them by all means, but be sure that you are ready before you accept their money because they may want to give, they may be easily giving you a thousand dollars and what you may want to ask them for eventually is $10,000, for example, or a hundred thousand dollars or whatever the number is. So be careful of, of jumping the gun too soon before you are really ready um, to talk to them in a meaningful way about how their gift will fit into the context of a larger campaign. That's right. They are going to want to see a gift range chart. And Gary's saying, be careful of the preemptive giver, right? Because they can offer you $10,000. But as Andrea said, what you really want to ask them for is 50,000 or 100,000. And you also don't want to accept any gifts because that donor may have uh, donor recognition in mind. They may want to name a room or a building. And if you haven't really thought through your gift range chart, you don't want to make any commitments too early in the process where you're letting people name things for 10,000, but really your naming opportunities should be only 50,000 and up or something like that. And you won't know that if you haven't done your planning. So thank them for their enthusiasm, as Andrea said, and ask, tell the, let them know that you need a few more weeks or, or possibly months of planning before you are ready to uh, secure those campaign gifts. In the meantime, ask them for their annual fund gift and let them know you'll be back for their campaign gift. And Jacqueline, I'm so happy to hear that that was the answer you gave them. Good instincts. You're, you're a pro. Good, good for you. You know, I have a funny story about that from my mentor, the guy who really got me going in this business, who told me once that he walked in to solicit a, a major donor to the, to the college that he became the president of. And, um, and he, he knew the donor well, and he knew the donor was capable of a big gift. And he sat down the donor, this guy, my mentor's name was John. He said, the donor said, John, I'm so glad you've come in. I'm, you know, always so happy to see you. We don't really have to talk about my gift. I've already decided what it's going to be. And he hands him a pledge form, right? Filled out or a check, whatever it was. And John, my mentor, had the presence of mind not to look at what was in it, but to simply slide it back over the desk and say, Tim, I so appreciate your the fact that you're giving and that you're going to give. But before you decide on what it is you want to give, I really want to have a serious conversation with you about this project and what's going on. And then if you want, if that's the gift you want to give, right, I will be happy to accept it. Well, lo and behold, they had a conversation. The guy kept his pledge form, right? Filled out a whole different one and a whole different magnitude and made a much larger gift. I thought it was so cool that John didn't look at the pledge form. He just slid it right back over the desk. It takes right? a lot of restraint, right? Not restraint. to look at that, at that pledge form or that check. Right, right. Um, excellent. All right. So Claudia is saying, um, you know, great about the webinar she's reacting to. We need to raise capacity money and they don't have an endowment after being many years in existence. So that is exactly right, Claudia, that a capacity campaign in part is going to help you grow your endowment fund. Um, so 
All right. And that's what we, one of the things we'll discuss on the webinar. All right. So Tim uh, asks about, about uh, engaging alumni in general. And he's asking about this from the perspective of the Boys and Girls Clubs, but any insight. Uh, and so there's a lot to know about alumni giving, and I am way not an expert in alumni giving. There are people on this, on this call who know much more about it than I, but I just want to make a, a couple of comments to you. First of all, you know, university, universities, colleges and universities have a really interesting situation. And that is that the more successful your college and university becomes after you graduated, the more radiance it sheds on you, right? I'll give you an example. I went to Brown University as a graduate student. Now, that was a bunch of years ago that I was a graduate student at Brown. It was certainly an Ivy League school. It was a well-known school. But in the years since I was there, it became a superlative institution. Now, when you hear I went to Brown, you're pretty impressed. Back then, it was like, oh, well, it was just kind of one of the so, so as an alumni, you benefit from giving generously to your institution to help make it be even more glittery because you will benefit. Other institutions don't have that particular kind of relationship, right, necessarily. So if you're thinking about alumni of Boys and Girls Clubs, you have to be careful and pay close attention. You certainly should build your alumni relations. But in terms of major gifts fundraising, you need to do a fair amount of research and see who it is you really want to be building strong relationships with of people who went to your program and did very well. And then you want to invest a lot of time and energy in, in drawing them in, right? And there are all kinds of ways to do that. Amy, your thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, clearly um, some Boys and Girls Clubs alumni are extremely committed, dedicated, and value that time in their life as really making a huge difference in their childhood and their growing up, how they are shaped as an adult. And I think tapping into that, um, yeah. So uh, Don is saying like Denzel Washington, I'm, I'm guessing he's a spokesperson for Boys and Girls Clubs since you're saying that, but that, you know, there's lots of, you know, it doesn't quite have to be Denzel Washington, but there's lots of people who attribute them become themselves becoming successful in life because of boys their their experience at the Y or boys and girls clubs or you know whatever youth program they were part of, and so um, I think you know really really important to to tap into that and ask them ask alumni, you know what difference did coming to the boys and girls club after school make in your life? Right. Did it you know did it make a difference? Yeah, and like then, Denzel Washington, Donna reminds us that Denzel Washington is a boys and girls club right. alumni. So there certainly are fantastic alumni, and and one should cultivate alumni. It's a question of from the development point. Of point of view, how much time and energy with any alumni, where you put your, where you put your time and energy. All right. Um, so I Maggie, have a, an answer to Maggie's question yet. Right. Have you looked at that one? Yes. Amy? All right. So Maggie's writing how much to ask for when submitting a grant application specifically for a capital campaign. She says she's already made contact with the program officers to qualify the fit and um, already set the expectation that it will be a 
a six-figure request, but it is their first time applying with several foundations, um, and and she knows their history. She's done their research. So what should she ask for? And I think that's the question. Yeah, I... um... So let me, I'll start this, start this off by saying that every, every time you can, you should determine what the ask amount should be in conversation with the, with your program officer. Right. I mean, they, you know, their hands are tied often by, um, by, by what the foundation does, by what the foundation's practices are. And it sounds as though you've researched those, but I would, I would probably see if you can set up a conversation with your foundation officer, with a program officer to say, listen, I really want to ask for $300,000 for, from you. Here's why. Do you think that would be appropriate or am I making a serious mistake to do that? And see what happened. I mean, one of the organizations that I work with, I just had this conversation actually, and they they um, they had floated the idea with the foundation of asking them for a million dollars. And the or this was some months ago, and the the organ the program officer had said, ah, oh, you know, we really never, you know, don't give at that level. Most we do is five hundred thousand. Maybe we could break that over to gifts and. And, and then they weren't ready to ask for a variety of reasons. So just recently, they went back and had a, had a meeting or a Zoom meeting with the program officer. And the program officer began the call by saying, well, are you still getting ready to ask us for a million dollars? So the program officer raised the amount, which we thought was a great sign. So now what they're doing is they're going to ask over three years, a half a million dollars a year over three years. They're going to end up asking for a million and a half, broadening it out over three years. But I thought it was interesting. They floated it, then time went by, and then the program officer raised it. So don't hesitate to float the higher amount. That's the moral of that story. I'm full of stories today. Excellent. All right. So Jim's asking about the quiet phase of a campaign, and he's going back to this comprehensive campaign idea. So Jim says, we're in the quiet phase of a campaign. We've been excited to share uh, with our friends and donors that our capital campaign will bring in some efficiencies to our organization that will keep any increase in annual fundraising to a minimum. My concern with advertising a comprehensive campaign is that we lose the opportunity to brag about the expectation that our annual fund will require only a very modest increase. Um, so let me, I think I have some initial thoughts. So one is, so we're not saying we're not arguing for a comprehensive campaign here. If if you heard that from Andrea, um, you you misheard. So we there are pros and cons to having a comprehensive campaign, which includes your annual fund, versus a capital or capacity campaign, which would not include your annual fund. So th- there may be a very good reason that you're stating that you wouldn't want to have a comprehensive campaign and include your annual fund. But the bigger issue I'm concerned with about your question is that 
that it's such a good thing that your annual fund isn't going up. That really concerns me. That's a red flag for me. And I think for Andrea as well, the way she's nodding her head at me. Um, you know, you're expanding your programs and services with a capital campaign. The expectation should be that your organization is growing. And along with that growth is a bigger annual fund. And I really feel strongly that we need to stop apologizing for needing to spend money to run these very uh, complex programs and services as we're trying to solve some of the world's biggest problems. And so the idea that you're emphasizing that your annual fund is not going to increase much um, should not be the main selling point of your campaign. The main selling point of your campaign should be that you are doing amazing programs and services that you're going to be able to serve so many more people or in more um comprehensive ways or, you know, whatever it is that your mission and that your vision and your campaign is accomplishing. I think that the idea, you know, and uh, I'm a little worried that one of the things that the ways that you're going to keep your annual fund down is the the idea that you're going to grow your endowment. Um, That's sort of making me quake inside a little bit. Yes, you might, but that you know, that's not what you need to advertise. Andrea, you were nodding along. What do you want to add? I totally agree with you, Amy. I mean, I think I think raising money to make an organization more efficient is a great idea. But the second, I was surprised when I got to the second half of that sentence, right? Because just going a little farther with what Amy said, if, if you have program efficiencies, the consequence of that is that you can have a bigger impact in the field. That's the com- that's that's what you want to accomplish with better efficiencies, and ideally, with any donor, you're doing you're doing a really good job of making them excited about their gift and what their gift has accomplished, and you want to stimulate the philanthropic impulse, not tell people they don't need to have a philanthropic impulse. Right? You want to be able to go back to people and ask them for more. And it takes some courage to do that. It's hard to get out. I, I have some sympathy for, for why one would think that. It seems such so hard to ask people for money. And it's so easy to think that they really don't want to give. That, that you know, it's it but but we have to in this business, if we're gonna really be good at it, we have to be able to hook into the notion that that giving is good, that giving is fun, that giving makes is one remarkable way we can make a difference in the world. And and until you can get yourself to really believe that, right, it will be and all it's true for all of us, right? I'm not just pointing at Jim, it's true for all of us. We we fight this battle because we know that that every donor has two sides, a push me, pull you. Do you know that Dr. Doolittle character, push <laughs> me, pull you, right? The Where, you know, one side wants to hold on to our money and the other side wants to be generous. And we're always battling inside of ourselves. But to be a really good fundraiser, you need to kind of find in yourself the, the a belief in the power of generosity to make people feel whole. And that will keep you from saying, we're not going to ask you for any more money. You always want to be asking people for more money. (laughs) All right. 
Let's keep going. First of all, um, I just want to read Karen's comment because I appreciate it so much. She's saying that, uh, Karen, thank you. I love your weekly webinars on Monday mornings at 11 o'clock here on the West Coast. Um, of course, it's two o'clock here on the East Coast. What a great way to start the week with your beautiful faces, laughter and expertise. Thank you for sharing your knowledge. Karen, you know, we do this with and for you, but also we get just as much from you being here as you do from us doing this. So we, I mean, it is a wonderful start to the week uh, for us as well. Of course, if you're listening to the podcast, it's coming out on Friday, this session. So we're bookending the week. Uh, We're starting with a live Q&A session, and then you can listen on Fridays um, on the podcast when it comes out towards the end of the week. So thank you. Uh, Miriam. Thank you, Karen. That's so sweet. Yes, Miriam wants to know if we have any suggestions on how to determine which individuals who have no affinity or connections to your organization to include in the feasibility study. And, uh, you know, I would go so far as to say, do we want to include any uh, individuals who have no affinity or connection to our organization in the feasibility study? Um, Miriam writes, I'm sure there's a tendency to want to interview people who have names on buildings all over town, but does it make sense to include them in a feasibility study just because they're so public in their philanthropy? Andrea, who do we include? Who do we not include? Yeah, here's, here's what I would say. In many communities, in many towns, there is a small group of people who give to many things. Right. They are sort of community philanthropists, if you will. And um, they often have a finger on the pulse of your community and a pulse of your organization, of your your region. And they think of themselves as leaders in the field, particularly when it comes to philanthropic things. If you can identify those people in your community and they are happy to talk to you. To do that as because they are they are people who play that role in your community is perfectly acceptable, even if they don't have a particular passion for your organization. Right. But don't just go to somebody because they're rich. Right. They're that's two different kinds of people. I mean, I lived for many years in a community which about 300,000 in the in the region. There was a group of maybe 10 people, five or 10 people, they actually gave broadly when it came to campaigns to organizations, even though they had their own favorite charities. But these people knew the community. They knew the philanthropic community. They saw themselves as power brokers. They were power brokers. And we always wanted to beat a path to their door, not saying that we wanted them necessarily to give, but asking literally for advice. And the feasibility study is not a bad time to do that, right? But just because someone has a lot of money and has a name on their building, on a building, that's not enough. They have to be in that sort of philanthropic inner circle of your community to put them on on your list. Is something to add to that, Amy? Uh, No. No, I'm actually looking at this question that came in earlier for, from Jean, and I, I, I misread it a, at the beginning. So let me read it now. Uh, so Jean's asking how to start a mid-level giving program. And um, I would like to throw that over to the chat box, actually. I'd love to see what our participants say, how they uh, start a mid-level giving program and think about that. And 
You know, I'll just start with my two cents, very general. And that's sort of about defining a mid-level giving program. And so when I think about um, your base for support, I think of a very um, sort of bulk process, right? When we're communicating with all of our donors, it's through direct mail, it's through email, um, it's through a, a bulk process where we're communicating with lots of people at once. You know, of course, we're personalizing it to the degree we can where we're inserting people's names and things, but basically everybody's getting the same letter. And then at the other end of the spectrum, we're soliciting very individually, specifically, personally, our major gift donors, our capital campaign donors, and our plan giving donors. And then the mid-level donors are the ones in between there somewhere, right? And so the question is, how do we treat them differently? How do we move them up from a monthly donor or an annual fund donor to that mid-level of giving? So I would love to see your responses. I'll give people a few minutes to put that in the chat and we'll go back to some of these other questions here. Um, all right. John, it looks like. John, maybe. Uh, what percent of, of capacity campaign should be set aside for endowment? I understand that some donors request that their money go in endowment, but this if this is not the case, what percent uh, would you put in endowment? And I guess, you know, there's a bigger question there. Would you automatically put a percent into endowment or how, how would you think about that? Um, yeah, I don't think that there is a percent. Let me say that I don't think there is, as an, a, there is not one answer to that. It depends on your organization. It depends on, on you know, how long you've been around, on whether you have a current endowment, on what your policies are, what your board's policies are about putting money away, whether you have, you know, there's a lot to know about endowment. I, we don't want to go into a lot of it today, but it's just a bigger question than, than this. Mostly what, what people do when they think about endowment is have is put money in a board restricted fund that behaves as though it were endowment or is treated as though it were endowment. That got us around the quasi quasi question. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was just about to say uh, we talked about endowments in detail about two or three weeks ago. So you can definitely go back um, in the podcast and look for that. Uh, we definitely uh, hammered that home, but. So the, the biggest way that people raise money for endowment, whatever kind of endowment it is that you have, is to invite people to give plan gifts, specifically in, to include your organization in their will. In your right, and that's the way to keep just keep pushing on that, keep giving people opportunities to do that. And over time, perhaps not in your time with the organization, but over time that will lead to building endowment. And your energy and effort now on that will be a boon to the organization going forward. Okay. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. Um, you know, I don't think necessarily a percentage of every gift to a campaign goes into an endowment. You'd have to make that very clear with donors. I think some would not 
necessarily be comfortable with that. Um, but if, if that's the way you want to go, you could for sure do that. Um, but it shouldn't, it shouldn't be a given that people's gifts, I think Andre, what Andrea said is that the vast majority of the funding for your endowment will come via planned gifts, primarily bequests. And that's what you should focus on for growing your endowment. Um, some people to your campaign will want to give to endowment. I think that most won't. Now, what Gary has asked a, t- a connected question in the chat box, which is that if you include, if, you're, if yours is a building campaign, do you believe in dedicating some money for ongoing maintenance of that building? And that's a terrific, a terrific policy, actually, to, to set up a special fund, right, that, that may be restricted, board restricted, so that money, that income that generates from that would go to the ongoing maintenance of that building. I think it's super wise. There have been colleges and universities that actually have have had policies that require campaigns to include a lot, a portion of of money given. You know, any gift given to a building campaign has to have a concomitant. How's that for a word? <laughs> a concomitant portion of it going into a fund for building maintenance. So some large institutions actually require that in their in their in their fundraising um, policies. Yes, I and I just want to read one more sweet sweet uh, chat. Uh, comment in the chat box from Ellen, who says, I've been in this profession for 35 years and still learn every time I participate on these calls. Get your CEO and key board members to listen in. They will be inspired and learn with you. And we so appreciate that, Ellen. Thank you so much. We do. We would love to have more CEOs and board members on the calls because then it wouldn't be you trying to convince them of different things. They could just ask their questions directly of us and listen to those questions, those answers. And so instead of you going back and trying to convince them of things, um, get them to tune in and submit their questions, um, both for the podcast that's coming up as well as these weekly toolkit talks. So, all right. Helene's submitting a question here. She's saying, Andrea, I so appreciate your podcast on how ask the ask conversation should flow. It has given me courage and tools can to conduct these capital campaign meetings. But at the end, even though I have an amount in mind, I leave it open ended. Oh, Helene. Helene. All have said yes so far. Yes, but they said yes to what, right? I'm having to do a lot of follow-up to get the pledge form or the check in hand. Um, yeah, and and of course, if you didn't ask for a specific amount, what are they saying yes to? Yes, they'll support your campaign for $10. That's not what you're looking for, right? Oh. I know. So listen, Helene, here is a here's an assignment for you. Every night before you go to bed, you're lying in bed, you're getting ready to go to sleep, and you close your eyes and you practice this line. John, would you consider a gift of a hundred thousand dollars to our campaign? <laughs> Amy, would you consider a gift of ten thousand dollars to our campaign? That's the phrase. Practice it until it is a groove in your brain, right? Would you consider a gift of X and put a number in there? And then the next time you solicit a gift, if it makes you really nervous, you can even say to the donor, now I'm going to do something that makes me really nervous. I'm going to ask you for a specific gift. Let me try this. So-and-so, would you consider a gift? You can tell people how nervous it makes you. That's okay. 
I, I completely agree. I encourage you to tell them that you are outside of your comfort zone in asking for this amount of money, but you can say, the children depend on it. The animals depend on it. The environment depends on it. So I am going to muster up all my courage and ask you for, you know, a specific dollar amount so that we can get this project done. And then we will have a conversation and a dialogue on what you want to give and what kind of impact you want to have. But, you know, in order for us to raise this gargantuan amount of money, um, I have been tasked to ask you for a specific amount, right? I mean, you don't want to ramble as much as I have, but that's, you know, that's the idea. That's the concept that you want to say, listen, the kids are too important for me not to ask you for a specific amount. And then I'd love to hear your reaction to my request. Um, yeah, so Pam's saying donors love your vulnerability and may actually give you more because you're honest. Um, you know, tell them, I, I'm really uncomfortable. I didn't get into this because I love raising money. I got into this because I love cleaning the environment. I didn't get into this because I, I love raising money. I got into this because the kids are so important. So. Um, and Jacqueline's saying, and remember, whoever speaks first after the ask loses. So ask and be silent, right? And what Jacqueline means by that is that if you say, you know, I'd I'm here to ask you to consider $100,000 and then the, the silence is killing you, you say, oh my gosh, I know that's a lot of money. How about less? Don't say that. Don't say that. Just be quiet. You oh. muster up the courage, ask for an amount, and then wait for their response. So two things to say about that. It, waiting even for five seconds feels like an eternity. Yeah. And, and one way to do that is to be sure you always have a glass of water by your side. And when you have asked for the gift, Amy, would you consider a gift of $10,000? You then you pick up the water and you start drinking. It's <laughs> just little sips, one yeah. after another, after another, it'll keep you from saying anything. <laughs> Yeah, it actually works. Yes. So that's 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 one thing. And one the thing. more nervous you are, the longer the silence feels. But they have to think about their answer. You've just asked them a big important question, and so you want them to think for a minute and really give you a thoughtful answer. I love this. Miriam wants to know if it can be wine instead of water. Yes, no. vodka. <laughs> I said yes. I said no. <laughs> no, no, Miriam, you're not drinking on the job. No, no, no. You can have wine after you get home <laughs> and with the donor. Well, I know lots of development directors and uh, and donor donors who love to have a drink. So I guess I'm wrong. I'm wrong on that one. You're wrong, right? Oh, <laughs> a little, little, little bit of wine never never hurt never hurt most donor conversations. Okay. Yeah, not, not if you're raising money for a for a, a substance abuse. That's or, right. Then 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 it's a problem. Yeah. You know the the phrase "whoever talks first loses," which is a very common phrase in the field. I have to say that I've wrestled with that phrase for a long time, for a lot of years. It, it is everywhere. Those of you who have brought it up, I understand why you bring, bring it up. It is a standard phrase in the field. But for me, honestly, it fits with phrases like low-hanging fruit or Mr. Got Rocks or, you know, these, these or twist people's arms. Or There's a whole negative language that people use about 
fundraising. And why does losing, winning and losing, I don't like the frame of it. I, I So I, I, I acknowledge that's what people say. It is long, it predates even me and my <laughs> fundraising. But I would encourage you to shift the way you think about it and think instead about about um, politeness. Think instead about the gift of of quiet. Think instead about about being kind and and you know being ready. How hard it is for the donor to figure out what they want to say. So if you can shift your your frame, your emotional frame, it will shift the way the silence feels, right? We, people pick that stuff up. And so just think about it a bit. Again, again, I'm not criticizing anybody. I get that it's a standard in the field. It really is. But boy, if I could, if I could shift the way we use language in this field by waving my magic wand, I would, I would do that. And I'd shift it about a lot of phrases. Um, Excellent. All right. So uh, my kids are in school for the first time in six weeks. I am already late to pick them up. So I am leaving early, leaving you with Andrea in her good hands, and I will see you guys next week. All right. Enjoy. See you later, Amy. Bye. So for those of you who don't know, Amy has just recovered fully from COVID. Her son got it and she got it and she was sick for about three weeks, almost three weeks. But finally today she is fully recovered and her kids are back in school. So we are we are all relieved, relieved about that. Now, let me go back to questions here. Uh, so I'm working on an annual fund campaign and I'm having a hard time. A hard, uh, having a hard time having our organization answer questions about why annual fund is needed. The CFO wants it to be only general operating dollars and doesn't want to define what it could do. Realistically, we received government funding for the majority of our program costs, but it doesn't cover the full professional costs incurred. I've hit a wall and don't know where to go next. What do you suggest I do? So any of you who are on this call who have suggestions as to how to get the chief financial officer or anyone else in the organization to understand that donors want to know what their, first of all, that more money from donors is good. And second of all, that donors do want to have a sense of what their money is going to support. How do you get, you know, CFO types are always problematic or often problematic. Um, so, so, yeah, put some suggestions in. I will read them out as, as we go. Judy has said annual fund gifts are building blocks for later major gifts. That's for sure. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, I think there are all kinds of ways to, to do that. But, but to me, and I keep coming back to this mindset issue, these things come from a mindset that asking people for gifts is somehow bad and that when people give you are some they are somehow having their arms twisted and when someone is of that mindset it's very hard for them to move into a place where they think of asking as a positive enterprise and um I think every time you ask for a gift, you need to be able to articulate and to talk about what the impact 
of giving generally is to the organization. If the bulk of your money comes from government grants, as our, our questioner has said, then the question is, well, why would you need more money? What is the extra money that is not restricted the way most government money is restricted? What is that extra unrestricted money going to allow you to do? And if you can begin to articulate that and talk to donors about that, you may be able to make your CFO feel a little a little more comfortable. But most of these problems have to do with, with a lack of understanding of giving and why people should give and how they feel when they give, right? And, and, and the fact that giving really does let us accomplish things in this world in a way that's easy. I mean, I often think that giving is about the easiest thing I do, right? It's a whole lot easier than going to committee meetings. It's a whole lot easier than, than doing a whole bunch of other things. That's the least I can do, not the most. So I, I, I think, if, I don't know if you can have board members talk to your CFO, if you can have donors talk to your CFO. Um, the uh, thank you for all of your comments. Uh, Charmaine writes, writes, I always made it a priority to develop an internal partnership with the CEO and other appropriate financial staff in the entire fundraising process and program. I think that is super important. I mean, particularly with the people who track the money and may not know much of anything about, about philanthropy. You need to cultivate those relationships so that you can help them understand what it is you're doing in a way that is constructive. Um, you can ask, uh, Jacqueline, thank you. You can ask program directors what, what they need, what the, that the budget doesn't cover. Or you can say to them, if we could raise more money over and above what the budget covers, let's have a brainstorm about what that would be. And you can actually invite your CFO into that brainstorm, perhaps. Um, Meredith writes, she has major donors who will only give for something, something in particular. Uh, she just makes sure to encourage them to give for something that you need now. Uh, we wouldn't get anything from them if I didn't let them do this. You know, I think about that as reframing your annual operating budget, right? Your annual operating budget is a pile of money. It's a cauldron of money, if you will, that, that pays for many things. Right? It doesn't just sit there in the in the pot. It actually pays for stuff. Right? You have a budget that line items what it pays for. You can pick any of those line item budget pieces and say to a donor, you know, your money is going to pay for for this, whatever it is, right? Whether it's if you have new desks in your operating budget this year, you can call out new desks. You don't have to have new things created just for the donor. All you need to do is to reframe or highlight what's already in your operating budget and talk to the donor. Say, we have a budget of $100,000 or a million dollars. We do many things with this budget, right? You might be interested in knowing about the such and such that's in the budget. Now, money is fungible. Do you all know that wonderful term, right? It, if you think about money, somebody gives money to the organization, it gets put in a big cauldron, you stir the cauldron around and you take money out to pay for all of the expenses that you have. It's not my dollar that's identified or your dollar. The money gets put in a big cauldron, a big bank account to be more prosaic about it. 
And then you write your bills. It's like your household budget, right? It's the same thing. Money is fungible. That doesn't mean that you can't talk to donors about what you're doing in the particular areas of their interest. That's, so it's a less challenging problem than you might imagine. Okay, let's see. John, I see you again here. Thank you for insight on endowment of board president. Good for you. We're so happy to have board presidents here. Um, there is much to know about endowments. One of these days, we will do a whole, se a whole another session, session on them. Let's see. Uh, our anonymous attendee has once said our capital campaign has lost steam due to the change in organization staff. How do we create new, new momentum? We're 80% towards our goal. Uh, could you do a guided feasibility study to regenerate interest? I'm not sure I would call it a guided feasibility study, but it is not uncommon towards the end of a campaign if you've lost energy to do a round of meetings with key donors, with people who have already given, to do an assessment to assess what it is you can still raise and how to go about it. That's a great way to engage and involve people. Um, if you want to seriously talk about that more, fill out a strategy session form request at the Capital Campaign Toolkit and we'll be happy to talk to you. Uh, let's see, any other final questions? I'm trying to keep up here. Twiggy Hedvig, it's nice to see you from Germany. It always makes me a Give makes me happy. Um, let's see, Cynthia, government grants are not guaranteed and any program costs not covered. Allow the programs to continue. That's right. Uh, Natasha, nice to see you here. Let's see, stories of impact are everything. And that's really a wonderful way for us to conclude. You know, there are two things I'd like you to, I'd like to close this call with. One is to really get yourself to wrestle with what it means to be generous, with what it feels like to be generous, and to be generous in all pieces. And when you give a gift, to find the generous spirit in that. When you talk to people, even people you don't agree with, to find the generous spirit in that. And God knows our country could sure, our world could sure use a lot more of that. That there is something about tapping into generosity broadly that sets us all up to be better fundraisers and to be better people, in fact, in this time when people are, there is so much strife and so much, so much negativity. I, I, I think that's a great, that's a great thing for us to all wrestle with, to, to try. It's very easy not to be generous. So, so that's number one. And number two is what Cynthia says, that stories of impact are everything, that you are all in the nonprofit business because you want to make an impact. And to the extent that you can find stories that tell your impact, right, that exemplify your impact, it will be good to inspire you, just like your comments inspire Amy and me, and to inspire your donors, because you'll be able to share them. So I think those are the two things I'd like to end with today. Um, I thank you all very much for, for being so so generous in contributing to this to this call for being with us uh, week after week. It, it, as Amy said, it does make it does add to our lives as well. So we'll see you next week. Um, 
And maybe we'll hear from some of you. In the meantime, we are doing this webinar for specifically for board members and executive directors. Amy posted it. If uh, you will get something in the mail tomorrow, I think about it in your email. So send it on to your board members and executive director. It, it'll be good and fun and interesting. Okay. Bye, everybody. Thanks for joining Amy and Andrea for today's All About Capital Campaigns. To learn more about them and their work together, go to capitalcampaigntoolkit.com.